know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 167. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, and today I'm going to be talking about system-imposed trauma. Have you ever heard the term? It's fairly new, but there's been a lot of work on trauma-informed practice, and I'm sure you've heard of that. If not, please look it up because being trauma-informed is critically important when we're working with a traumatized population. We need to sort of put on our trauma lens glasses to be able to see that a lot of the experiences, a lot of the thinking, feeling, behaving that occurs with survivors is because they experience trauma. So being able to be trauma-informed helps you understand a lot of the behavior that might be happening among survivors. But I'm not talking about trauma-informed care today. I'm talking about system-imposed trauma, systems that have indeed themselves caused trauma. So learning to view clients as people that suffered trauma is important. However, there's something bigger than that. In trauma-informed care, we assume that the clients have been traumatized by somebody other than our system, whether it be, you know, our system is law enforcement or social services or mental health or substance abuse or healthcare, legal, whatever. We assume that they were traumatized somewhere, mostly by those bad actors, like those traffickers, those abusers, those exploiters. Um, and while that may be true, we often have blinders on when it comes to us or our system and what we've done to traumatize vulnerable populations. So today we have a guest, Dwayne Heron. He's a successful master degree professional that works in the maternal and child health field, helping pregnant women at risk to have healthy babies by facilitating programs that reach out and walk beside high risk, low-income pregnant women to increase the probability that they have a healthy birth. Through his programs, they do everything to help women have a healthy baby. He also serves as a public health consultant on such things. He's passionate about helping people, but Dwayne was a child that was a victim of system-imposed trauma. What is system-imposed trauma? It refers to those environments and those institutions that cause trauma, maintain the trauma that they themselves have caused. They cause the post-traumatic stress. They injure the very clients that they wanted to help. Oh, now there's a substantial body of theoretical and empirical knowledge and clinical work 
examining examining trauma and as it relates to individuals or perpetrators and but now we have to acknowledge that there are circumstances where the institutions themselves can cause trauma now this is a hard conversation to have it's difficult to think about and it's not necessarily the organization you work for, but the system of organizations that are causing damage, particularly to vulnerable children and adults. It's a difficult listen, but it's a story that I think you need to hear. It was difficult for Dwayne to tell it. it, took a lot of courage, and he had to stop several times through this interview to compose himself to be able to to tell it. So without further ado, here's Dwayne talking to us about system-imposed trauma through the lens of his story. Good morning. My name is Dwayne Heron. I just want to give you a brief content warning. Over the next 40 to 45 minutes, we'll be talking about some deep-seated trauma from the effects of being in foster and adopted care. Some of these include physical, mental or emotional, and sexual abuse. If you find this content triggering, disturbing, or difficult to hear, it is okay to take a step back, practice some self-care techniques, or if you need to distance yourself, that's completely okay too. Our objectives today is to highlight my personal story looking at the devastating effects of system-imposed trauma. Next, we'll unpack the trauma and look for the root causes of it. Finally, we're going to look at what to do to avoid this type of trauma in the future as we examine this as a case study and look at how to increase the support and providing safety for children in need. Let's talk about me. I was born in the summer of 77 and my siblings and I entered the foster care system in 1988. We were adopted in 1991 and over that time, just from a kid, I've always been committed to learning. I've loved working in sports. I loved art. And of course, I was an opera singer. I will not be doing any demonstrations today. And I was so involved in church activities that I was always busy. I had zero interest in dating or intimate relationships. And most importantly, I was not sexually active. So the day we went to Cedar Point will start in the year 1992. On August 15th, that morning, I was awakened by screams from my adopted mother for me to come downstairs, where she kept asking me, why did I touch her kids? And it turned out touch meant molesting two of my sisters. By the weekend, it went from molesting two of my sisters to include a brother and a, and a cousin. And by the end of the weekend, after we got out of church, 
my aunt and I got into this physical altercation because she felt like I had did something inappropriate to her daughter and she beat me with her fist, not a belt, not a switch or anything across the entire home. I covered my face. I tried to keep myself protected. I tried to run away from her. She kept grabbing my shirt. My face at this point was bloody. My body was pretty banged up. And at the climax of it, I was thrown down a flight of stairs into the basement where she continued following me and beating me. And I'm glad that my sophomore year of high school did not start until a few weeks later because I was able to fully recover. After this, a children's services investigation was launched formally and it included some questions where they asked me about sexual activity or what did I think about sex activity? And really all I was interested in doing was trying to get started for the school year. I was interested in my cross country practices that was coming up. I was interested in church. There was little to no interest in, in girls, let alone sex at all. And during this period, I continued to remain confused about what I was actually being accused of and remained concerned about my school and church activities. Later, at the beginning of the school year, I was removed from my adopted family's home and placed with an aunt for a short while because she had older children. I wasn't allowed to be around children unsupervised at this point. I went to school and continued to do my lessons as I wanted to every day. And, and as a team player, I continued cooperating with Lucas County Children's Services and continued asking and answering those questions rather and meeting with mental health professionals. I went to church and, and the only time I really saw my family was at church because I was not allowed to really visit with them during the week while these events were going on. My mother sent me to speak to my pastor, which was awkward because once again, I was this kid who was not sexually active and I wasn't quite grasping all of these events that were happening to me. And it was the first time in my life, I was now 15, that I was really separated from my siblings and not necessarily able to visit with them. And that was difficult because they were really the only family that I've ever had and trusted. During this time period, I became more reserved. I'm a natural introvert, even though people think I'm extroverted. Quite the opposite is true. What I remember about this time is that with all of these questions being asked of me, no one was really listening to me. No one really heard that I wasn't sexually active. No one really heard the fact that I had no interest in girls or sex. And I was more still interested in just life and school and, and trying to graduate high school in a couple of years and hopefully set myself up for a nice college career. I lost trust with Lucas County Children's Services and mental health providers because the most common phrase that I heard after I would speak with them about my needs was, that's not what your mother said. That's not what we're telling us. And so as a result, I just kept myself busy, school, church, cross country, whatever I could do to keep myself and my mind off of these events of the day until it escalated to the point where I now had to go to the juvenile court system. A, a hearing was scheduled with a magistrate. I was assigned a public defender and 
since the situation still seemed cryptic, but now I was in a captive audience, I was able to really ask pointed questions about what was it I was being formally accused of. I want to break into this podcast and ask you an important question. Why did you become so passionate about the issue of human trafficking? Because you know how precious freedom really is. And you know that if you could offer that to someone else, it would make your life that much richer as well as theirs. Whatever you've accomplished thus far in life, nothing is more satisfying than being able to help someone receive the gift of freedom. If you're interested in taking the deep dive and becoming trained, write this down. It's my Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors course. You know, many direct service providers are passionate about working with survivors. They understand their why in doing this work, but many don't understand their what to do or how to do it or when to do it and where and how much to do what. And unfortunately, we don't give permission for someone to be honest and say they don't have the knowledge and skills to effectively work with a population of survivors that have suffered trauma. Well, I have a course on how to work directly with survivors, including the 10 common areas of need and how to assess those areas of need, and then how to intervene more effectively and in trauma-informed ways. Complete my course, Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors at your own pace. I'll walk alongside you as you walk alongside survivors, sharing with you my almost 30 years of experience. If you're interested, you can find my free webinar on my website at CeliaWilliamson.com. And now on with the podcast. And so the formal the formal complaint was that I had two counts of gross sexual imposition. That meant that it wasn't elevated to the point of rape, but something sexually inappropriate took place and they couldn't pinpoint it. So it's just a very broad category. So I was being accused with two counts of that. I asked for clarification for things like blowjob and penetrative sex because those words were thrown around and I really... I had no idea what they were talking about. So imagine me looking mortified when I learned for the first time about oral and vaginal sex. And not only that, that those were acts that I had my own dear sisters do to me. And I reacted like a normal kid learning about those things for the first time in court. And I it was almost like a scream, like, oh my gosh, that sounds crazy. And and it came across as me being condescending or disassociating with what was actually happening. My sister and a mom took the stand. My adopted mother took the stand. And so the one sister who did not take the stand, the accusation was that I paid her a sum of money to perform oral sex on me. And the other sister who did take the stand said that I forced her against her will to have vaginal sex with her. I, I went to my mom's room in the night and drug her out and kept her mouth covered past all of my brothers whose rooms were wide open and past my mom who was a light sleeper, but I somehow was able to get her to the landing, commit a, a awful sex act and get her back to the room undetected with no one ever knowing. Part of this evidence included a picture of what looked like a penis, but I knew it was not mine. I was sexually explorative at the time, even though I was not sexually active. 
And I knew that was not my picture. I did not know whose it was. The juvenile prosecutor asked me, do you know what a liar is? In fact, that was one of the only questions she had asked me. It was very brief, and I, in a condescending nature, being a nearly straight-A student at the time, retorted back, sure, it's someone who doesn't tell the truth. And her argument was that I was just saying that all these folks were lying, and I simply said yes because... I never did those things, and I was still confused as to why I was being accused of these acts. So I was convicted and sentenced to jail pending a formal sentencing, which would have occurred in February of March of 1993. So that meant that I was going to be behind bars for a minute. And so it included Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas. My adopted mother didn't come and visit me for the first couple of times, which was a little devastating. But then she visited me nearly every time after that. And I continued meeting with my public defender, cooperating with mental health folks, and just kept telling them that I was innocent. What I do remember about being in the CSI or the Child Study Institute, as that's what it used to be called, is that my humanity was stripped. I did this whole fingerprints. They took a couple of photos of what I looked like. I had to take off all of my clothes and put on some clothes that were assigned to me. The only thing that I was able to keep were my tennis shoes that I was wearing at the time. And it was just devastating to me. I remember the fire hydrant quality pressure showers that had to be done in four minutes or less. I remember point systems being awarded for all of your behavior from the beginning of the day to the last part of the day with every activity that happened. And after a couple of weeks and I figured out the system, then I was able to stay up late and enjoy cookies and punch and get to watch some television. So instead of going to bed at nine, I would generally go to bed at 1030, 10 to 10.30, and sometimes a little bit later, depending on who was leading the place. I participated in school programs. I was a good team player. And to keep myself in shape, I was running in place. They would look in at night and be like, what is this kid doing? I would just sing church songs and run in place to keep myself in shape because I hoped that I would get out in time to hopefully run track. So after being there a couple of months, which does not seem like a lot of time today as the 45-year-old, but as a 15-year-old, that's a lot of time of being confined somewhere. I'm continuing to meet with my public defender and mental health folks and children's services, and I keep telling my adopted mom I'm innocent, but it was clear that a conviction was going to happen, and apparently there was enough to get a charge. And so what I needed to do was make a decision, and it was awful because I knew I didn't do it, but I was facing being in jail until I was 21, maybe 22. And I just said, screw it. I'm going to just say that I did it. So I just told them that I did it because I figured the path might be a little bit easier for me and I might be able to get out of jail. I wrote an apology, which I read to my siblings and had moved on. And 
apologized about everything that I had did to them. I had apologized to my mom and and how difficult I had made life for everybody and said I would continue to fully cooperate with the courts and children's services for next steps. And so those next steps meant that I was released between Christmas and New Year's. It was great. I was just sitting in the chair talking with um, Mr. Hayes, who was who was at CSI, and I just remember him hanging up the phone after he had picked it up in the middle of our conversation, and he said, get your stuff, you're getting out of here, and I never ran so fast. Um, but the rest of the consequence was I would be on probation until I was nearly 18. I had to agree to not travel outside of Lucas County um, until during that time without court approval. I also agreed not to be around children under the high school age without adult supervision. I agreed to continue with my mental health um, counseling and, and supervised visits um, with my structured supervised visits with my siblings. But the biggest thing is that I had to go to sex offender treatment classes. And in those classes, I was with peers who had committed similar crimes, and I agreed to keep a sexual fantasy journal um, of what I thought about. The biggest thing is that I repeated those stories over and over that I heard my sister say in court and that I heard my mom say until I was convinced that I was making it a truthful statement that I could repeat every week because it was set up like an anonymous, like an Alcoholics Anonymous group. Hi, my name is Duane and I'm a sex offender. Hi, Duane, and I would talk about what I did. But imagine my shock when I'm with peers who had did similar things, but I couldn't react because it was my first time hearing what other people had done. And it was devastating to me, like people actually do these type of things. What was interesting is that with those sexual fantasy journals, it became clear to me and my probation officers that I didn't really fantasize about little girls at all. It was always grown folks. Some women, mainly men and, and grown men, and what I realized through this road of, of discovery from age 15 to 17 is that I actually liked boys. Um, I, I didn't like girls. I say that like as I'm thinking as a 15-year-old kid, I really didn't have any interest in girls. I, I, I wrote about grown men and that was a, a revelation for me. And if I was never part of those classes, I probably never would have discovered that about myself. Um, I continued visits with my siblings, but it's important to note that whenever I would visit them, they'd run towards me and not away from me as if I never did anything to them. And so we'll talk about that a little bit later. Mrs. Richardson, Mrs. Frankel, and, and Ms. Um, Davis McGowan were my angels during this time. Once again, it's it's like from, from the beginning of, of 1993 to August of 1994. And Mrs. Richardson was my foster mom. And I blossomed with academics and church. She let me go to track clubs. I was this amazing baton twirler in the band. And she just let me grow and blossom and gave me these life lessons about how to manage money and about how to live life because one day I would be 18 and living on my own. Mrs. Frankel, my college librarian, 
and quiz bowl coach, everything that I've accomplished, even up to the point of me making this presentation to you, is by her taking some personal time out of her schedule and taking me to get my college entrance exams done and my first college visits because my adopted parents didn't value education that much to the point where if she hadn't made that intervention, I probably would not be here and I'm so grateful. And then my caseworker throughout all this, Miss Davis McGowan, just worked alongside me to wellness and just and just kept the course and kept the faith. But she was faced with the most difficult thing of having this tough conversation with me because in August of 1994, she came up to me and told me that I would have to go back to my adopted parents' house. No one listened to me. I didn't have any rights. I did everything and resisted up until the very end, which was two days later, and really tried to problem solve. And there was no way around it. Mrs. Richardson and I just, I promised her that I would call her every week and we would keep in contact no matter how difficult things got. And my senior year just turned out to be the worst year of of high school. It's supposed to be a year that you come of age and a lot of great things happen, but all I kept remembering was all the difficulties that I faced by just going back into that home. There was no resistance by my siblings, the ones that I had allegedly molested, hugged me with open arms. And, and I think that we'll talk about that a little bit later. So during my senior year of 1994 to 1995, my adopted mother started to isolate me. I, my, my dad side of the family lived a few blocks from me. My grandmother would always come over and visit us. She forbade me to hang out with them. She told my grandmother she could no longer come over. She told me that under a pain worse than death, like she told my siblings later on in the story, I wasn't allowed to go around my family. And it was just, it was the worst thing. I would be forbidden to go to certain band events, to certain sporting events, to certain choir events, and they would keep me home for whatever reason. I had to get a job. I worked at Frisch's Big Boy. And I had to pay them $75 a week in rent. And it was during that time I became an entrepreneur because I was giving them most of my paycheck and would only have like $30 or $40 left after taxes and gave giving them my money. So I became a waiter and worked double shifts and things to keep more of my money in my pocket so that I could actually enjoy the reason why I went to work. And because they prioritized me working so much over my academics, it was the first time other than me being in CSI that I legitimately failed a class. And, and that was really difficult for me. But worse, my parents did not, adopted parents, my adopted mother was married at this time. They didn't support me doing higher education. And when I went to go apply for college, I uncovered something that I probably was supposed to never find out. I filled out my, my free application for federal financial aid. And, and in that, 
the income that my adopted parents made had to be reported. So there it was, those subsidies for me and four other folks, siblings that she had adopted being reported between $350 and $500. There were SNAP benefits that she received for having seven children. She was considered low income, so she qualified for Section 8 and a first of the month check, as you call it, from welfare. She received SSI checks for two of my siblings, one who had mental issues for being sexually abused and things, and another adopted sibling for being born as a drug-addicted child and had some of his intestines and other health problems because of it. She received checks from them that averaged between $400 and $650. Tax returns, earned income credit for those seven kids, adoption credit for five of us, and based on the criteria, all of us could be considered special needs, and that could be up to an amount of $6,000 um, per child once per, um, during the lifetime. And while the funding provided food, shelter, clothing, we were always sharply dressed. We always looked good. So people felt like we needed to be happy. This is what my adopted mother told us because you know, they rescued us from a drug addicted mom and we should just be grateful. And, and I continue to be even further isolated because I kind of added all of this up and figured out, you know what, she's got a nice, pretty good income for a lady that's not working. So she was pretty much using this system. And life went on. I continued twirling baton and, and, and captured lots of state and national titles and went to college. And, and when I turned 18, I sealed my juvenile records. It was the best $30 I had ever spent. And I literally took the experience and put it in a secret place in my heart. And I forgot about it. And I never looked back when I turned 18, no matter how difficult things were. I just continued to make this weird life for myself free from my adopted family because I just wanted to be something else. And then in 2002, the story picked up. So let me tell you about my adopted mother. Born in 1960, when she took us in 1988, she was 28 years old. And she, at the time, was working at Cash and Carry off of Door and Secor as a grocery store clerk or cashier. And children were her ministry. And I met her at Los Salem Missionary Baptist Church because we used to go there when we were staying with Suge, one of our foster mothers that lived on Elizabeth, and she sent us to that church. And this lady almost took pity on us. And she made this decision to to become this foster mom and to do whatever she could to take care of us and nurture us, to keep us together um, as, as siblings and then become um, our mom. And I used to stand in front of church and just talk about how amazing this woman was and, and just thanked God in heaven for sending this beautiful lady into our lives because our mother didn't care to have us anymore. She was out doing drugs. Our stepdad was out doing drugs. My dad, by 1989, was in jail for selling drugs, and he served that sentence for 26 years. And all we ever wanted was a mom to take care of us. And this woman almost just fell into our lives. 
And I was always so grateful of her strength and, and for teaching me modesty and for teaching me how to, to treat women and to be just like a gentleman and, and to be a responsible gentleman. And I was always so thankful for her. Even with all of those things that happened, I still remained grateful to her because she was my mom. She came to visit me every day while I was in jail, and, and I thought she was looking out for me. And then on December 6th of 2002, she died, and it was the absolute worst day of my life. She, Her heart stopped while she was at Warren AME Church at a funeral in the middle of the aisle on her way to see the body and her heart just stopped and she fell out in the middle of the aisle. And my sister called me distraught, said it had been five minutes and they just couldn't get a pulse back. They couldn't get it back. And, and at 42, she died. So on the 10th, I was invited to, to the funeral with my older brother um, to help plan her services. I, I wrote the obituary, I chose the casket, I made clothing and makeup suggestions because I was almost like her right-hand man and I kind of knew about her style and, and things of that nature. But on December 10th, I also had this crazy revelation. You see, she had another daughter in 1996. Um, when I, by the, or by the time I had came home, she, you know, she had had another, she had had another child. So what's difficult about this day when we're planning their funerals that I saw with my own eyes, her signature, when I saw these life insurance policies, I noticed that her birth children are the only beneficiaries. She adds her oldest son when she gets the policy in the 1980s. She has her daughter in the spring of 1994. And a few months later, she adds her daughter to her policy as the second beneficiary. However, she adopted five of us in between the time she had her oldest and her youngest child. What's interesting to note is that she paid for these policies fully with the money that she made from adopting the five of us. December 11th was the worst day of 2002. I thought that the week had already gotten worse. And so we're gonna define courage as the dictionary defines it as strength in the face of pain or grief and, and brave to be able to endure or face unpleasant conditions or behavior without showing fear. And my two beautiful, strong, amazing sisters sat me down in my car, my brand new car that I had just bought, to clear the air about something I had long forgot. My sisters first told me I never touched or sexually abused them, and they were sorry for being responsible for all of the bad things that happened to me. And we could talk about that later. And then the worst. They said everything in the story was true. 
except for it was my adopted mother who had discovered them in their bedroom, which was a little bit off of the alcove away from all of ours, prompting her to move them to her room. And so now that made sense. I just thought they wanted to move there because they wanted to hang out with the girls. You know, the girls wanted to hang out together and they wanted to be with their mom. They were the only two girls before Maisha, so that made the most sense. They told me that my adopted mother's son and nephew were the ones that were molesting and raping them. And for one of my sisters, they continued doing so, starting at the age of seven when the accusations happened to, against me until they were 18. And when I thought it could get worse, my adopted mother, who I trusted with my entire life, made my sisters lie to the police, to children's services, to the juvenile courts, that I, not her son and nephew, molested them. My sisters were coached on what to say, how to behave if they were being questioned. And what was interesting is that my adopted mother never ever left their side to keep them on message, keep them on message. And if my sisters had ever said otherwise or had repeated a word to anyone, they would suffer a fate worse than death. And all of us were deathly afraid, like from a religious type of fear afraid factor of our adopted mother. And so I knew that when they sat me down to tell me that and tears were running down their eyes, that their pain was indeed real. And they waited to tell me because they told me they had to make sure that she was dead and by no miracle she was ever coming back. <laughs> so... I, I had to process that all over and I held them tight. I hugged them. I still love them dearly. They are my heart and soul. And in that moment, I felt like I was able to begin being their big brother again because that veil of whatever was keeping us apart was gone again. I stopped talking to my adopted family about a year after that because they found out that my sisters told me and that meant that others knew they weren't mad at what happened. Forget what happened to them. They had got raped. They had had all these awful things happen to them. The adopted family were mad that they told me. Why did you have to tell him? They kept saying that. Another aunt, the same aunt who beat me half to death, told me to let it rest with my mom in the grave. That's what they told me. Let it rest. Let it go. She's gone. There's nothing that could happen. And how could this woman, remarkable woman, pillar in the community, all of these things that I continued to say, even at the funeral, after they told me this, where children were her ministry and the one I loved more than anything else in the world, anyone who knew me at the time knew that I was crazy about my adopted mother, not in like a Oedipus, um, Eurydice type complex, but I really loved my mom for being my mom. Like who doesn't love their mom? Just thanking God to it. That this lady was the worst, was the source, excuse me, of the worst events in life to have ever happened to me. Like how could, how could it, how could she be the cause? 
and I forgot about it. I tried to live life. I tried to stay busy bowling and volleyball and go to the gym every day and running and exercise and and social clubs and, and hanging with friends to not think about it. And then finally, in 2012, I had a psychotic break, which just led up to, because I never reconciled the fact that my mother, whom I loved, would ever do those things. And so I I concealed it like I did those events back in 1992. But this was different because now I know that my mom, it was my mom's fault. And I moved to Wisconsin. And after I moved to Wisconsin, I slowed down. And in me slowing down and no longer being as busy, I ended up breaking down as far as you could and and I snapped and checked myself into a um a mental health facility through University of Wisconsin Madison where I received my health care. And so Nathan and Stephanie were my they they brought me back and I and I'm so grateful for the service that they provided. I was diagnosed with major depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, general anxiety disorder, and sent to a child psychologist. Um, they specialized in trauma-informed recovery and working with children with adverse childhood experiences or what we know as ACEs. And me, uh, my sisters and I, our ACE score is a 10, like 10, like all of the questions, so 10. Um, my adopted mom and family humiliated me and my siblings. Physical abuse beyond regular discipline to, to drive home a point and to keep us afraid. The abuse involved more than belts, sometimes brooms, a paddle from Cedar Point, extension cords. Marks were left and were covered accordingly because what happened in the home stayed in the home. When I was 14, my adopted mother tried to t teach me to masturbate and touched me in a way that me not being sexually active left me completely confused and off. Like, what is she trying to do? And when I mentioned this, when I, in 1994, I tried to mention this as a way to not get me back in the home, children's services and everyone blew it off as nonsense, as a major concern. But it, it just, no one just didn't think it was a concern. Not once, not once, public or private, did I ever hear my adopted mother or anyone in my family say, I love you, to me or my siblings. My mom never said it, not once. And under adopted care, we cooked and ate different meals. So the malnourishment question is a little different here. We would cook fried chicken and the fixings for my adopted mom and her children while we ate corned beef and hash and tater tots or a meal that you popped in like Salisbury steak with mashed potatoes in the oven from Aldi's. And that was our meal. Bran flakes from from wick or or the cornflakes that we would got with a little sugar on it while we may have cooked pancakes and eggs and bacon for you know my adopted mom and her husband and her children and and that was a part, a big part of our life my birth parents they were divorced so we had went through that my my birth mom was physically abused and we watched that abuse and we watched the same abuse with my adopted mother between her and her husband 
my adopted stepfather and my parents, they did drugs. My birth parents did drugs. My birth mom was so addicted to, co to cocaine, excuse me. It cost her her life at the age of 43 in the year 2000. Mental illness ran in my birth and adopted family. And finally, my dad, you know, for selling drugs, I had a, a I have a parent at the time who was in prison, finishing out a 26 year prison sentence. The biggest thing that we talked about in, in these classes is that my mom, she manipulated me. A manipulator, a manipulation, behavior designed to exploit, control, or otherwise influence others to one's advantage. And in this case, my adopted mom's advantage. And, and the common traits, they know my weaknesses. They know how to exploit them. She knew what I would say in court and zeroed in on those questioning because she knew how it react. They use our insecurities against you. I became more insecure as I was in this weird spot as a 15 year old. They're convincing you to give up something important to you, like my running, my academics, um, to make you more dependent on them because then that made me more dependent on home, especially if I was isolated. And if they're successful, they continue to do so until you're able to get out. So when I wasn't at the house, I was able to, to be free of that type of manipulation. And when I turned 18, I ran far from it. More characteristics is that they manipulate and twist facts to their advantage. And in this case, with me going to court, that's exactly what my adopted mother did. She exaggerated and, and generalized things to make things to be more of a big deal where the facts were so egregious as Lucas County Children's Services said it was such an ironclad story. Who were we to refute it? Cruel humor. Gaslighting. She twisted my total reality where I went from this straight A student with promise who could have been a track and field athlete who could have went beyond the college realm and maybe into the professional realm into a black sex offender who had a criminal record. And I was convinced that that was me for a short while. Passive aggressive in her own behavior, not only in how she went towards others in her manipulation, but in how she treated us. And, and we were always judged. You, you, you know, your mom was nothing but a crack addicted person and, and, and you're nobody and you wouldn't be anybody if we didn't take you off of the streets. She used religion as the source of her manipulation and with her moral and ethical standards where they just became too hard sometimes to live up to and would guilt trip you if you did not. Always keeping track, always need to know where you are. The reason why you isolate is because you keep a pulse on where people are. And, and we were always bombarded with expectation rules, wants, and if we didn't measure up, there was always hell to pay. And that's what she did, and, and why? Those monthly subsidies, those SNAP benefits, remember all of that money that I had talked about earlier? She would have lost a whole entire empire if her son and her nephew were implicated. She loses her foster care licensure. It goes on her record and we're all taken out of the home and, and basically rehomed. 
But if I'm implicated, she keeps her license. Her and her financial interest continued without consequence. We as her adopted children, why? Because we were expendable. Because we weren't really her children. Everything was about the two children she had. But she used us as the vehicle to provide for everything she needed them to have. Abuse and actions against us was masked through the guise of religion as honoring your mother and father, as the Ten Commandments would say, that your days might be long and people didn't think that that was a problem. Isolation, put downs, and, and that old adage of a child is seen and not heard or that tale about what happens in the home stayed in the home. With her, that fueled this environment that allowed her to become a master manipulator. And if she, if her son was implicated, she would lose influence, loss of financial security, and, and community respect. But you know, we dress sharp and look good. No one would ever suspect Sister Heron as someone involved in something below reproach. Four to six days she went to church, woman of God. Her life's wish was that all her siblings would be saved, as she called it. And she went from a grocery store clerk to managing and manipulating the system in her favor financially, allowing her to become a full-time mother. The truth is my adopted mom didn't love me. Lucas County Children's Services and the juvenile court system, which should have protected my siblings and I, actually worked against us and contributed to my and their trauma. And after healing my soul for a short while away from the home, I had to go back to a place of pain and trauma as if nothing happened. System-imposed trauma, it's complex, chronic, and debilitating. For those social workers and caretakers, take that extra step to make sure that interviews do not involve coaching. Today, they keep them by themselves. Interviews, think horses and not zebras, because it's got stripes and everything looked great with the story. No one suspected anything. But here I was, the horse, galloping. Hey, I'm not sexually active. I don't know anything about girls. After thriving from the trauma, I was forced beyond my own personal choice and had to go back to it. Never shrug off the signs of a master manipulator. And the abusers, those folks who had did these things to my siblings, they're still out there and they still need help. What was worse about this trauma is that I was taken out of the home, but my sisters who were the victims were still there, being molested, being victimized. System and prose trauma causes lifelong trajectory changes. I lost out on a college opportunity where I would have went to a private boarding school in Hightstown, New Jersey, which would have led me to the Ivy League school of my choice. I missed out on track and field development opportunities that could have taken me to who knows where. But because of this, I was held back. Take that extra step and do a 360 assessment. Everybody gets assessed. Look for holes in the story basically confirming and matching those facts to what the victims are saying and poke holes if it doesn't seem right. Black men, 
black men like myself, boys, are disproportionately accused of sex crimes that they didn't commit. And because of it, my life was so changed to the point where I woke up on a day in August, on the day that we went to Cedar Point. And on that day in August of 1992, my life changed forever. In a way at that time, I never knew. But today, I decided to write about it and share that story with others in a way not only to inspire hope to people who have been through my situation, but to prevent the ills that happened to my sister and my siblings and I when we were under the care of a master manipulator in adopted care. That was Dwayne Heron. Powerful, powerful story. And if you got through this whole story with a dry eye, you are better than I am. The point of Dwayne's story, the reason he's coming out to tell his story is so that people will take a second look, so that people will do a 360 assessment. What does that mean? Assessing everybody that has been involved, talking to every single person that has been involved, poking holes in the story, asking yourself, what's wrong with this story? As he said, complex, chronic, debilitating. That's what system-imposed trauma is and does. It's complex. Lots of players involved, lots of things going on. It can be chronic where this person is being injured over and over and over. Because we told the story so many times, then the system believes the story and imposes it on everyone until he even started to tell the story in a way that the system wanted him to tell it. It's debilitating. It's traumatic. It changes life trajectories for people. Can you imagine how often this must happen in a stigmatized population such as those who are trafficked? How often must something like this happen? How often does it happen to children? How often does it happen to kids in foster care, like in Duane's case? And how disproportionately must it happen to, like he said, Black men, Black boys in the system? I want you to remember this story, especially when there comes a time when everybody believes one thing. Question that. Always question that. Dwayne talked about horses and zebras. Let me explain. In medical school, that's how they teach you. They say, look at the symptoms. And most often, it's a horse. It's a common cold. Um, once in a great while, it might be a flu or it might be a rare illness. But most of the people that come in, to the medical practice if you're a doctor, you look at the symptoms, you add up the symptoms, they add up to something that's very common. Horses are very common. Once in a while, it's a zebra. It's so rare medical condition. It's a rare illness. But most often, people that come into a medical practice, their symptoms add up to just common everyday horses. What he's saying in social services, we often see a lot of zebras. We see 
Yes, this person has abused children. Yes, this person is whatever this we the symptoms add up. It's rare in society. It's not as rare, but it's it's sort of rare for someone to be a perpetrator. The common person in society is not a perpetrator. So it's sort of a zebra. And in, in the professional helping fields of social services or counseling or anything like that, we see a lot of zebras. When we go out in everyday life, we see a lot of horses, but in our jobs, we see a lot of zebras. And what he's saying is, once in a while, the kids that come into your practice that are accused, stigmatized, sometimes they're not zebras, they're just horses, just horses. So don't assume just because somebody is involved in child welfare or um, juvenile court uh, that they're automatically a zebra. They're automatically guilty by association. Always ask yourself, if the story is true, who benefits? Because in criminal investigations, they often chase the money, follow the money, and you find out often what's really happening. Why should you always question yourself? Because no is important. No, maybe this didn't happen the way everybody says. No is important because yes is so expensive. It was expensive in Dwayne's case. When we get it wrong, we have the power to ruin lives. Ruin lives. It's so wonderful the way we wrap up this national and global conversation. We say we need to be trauma-informed. We need to practice trauma-informed care. Oh, don't we give ourselves such a positive, we shine such a positive light on what we now need to do. Why do we now need to do that? Because we have messed up people's lives in the past. That's why we need trauma-informed care. So nice that we give ourselves a pass with this wonderful word, trauma-informed. And the reason we need to be trauma-informed is because in the past, yesterday, most of us today and tomorrow will be traumatizing. We will be traumatizing the vulnerable people we claim to help. Our systems will be hurting people. We will engage in groupthink. When somebody believes it's true and somebody else believes it's true, now this system believes it's true, multiple systems believe it's true, and we wrap ourselves around sometimes this lie. We see things as black and white, bad or good. And oh man, if you are in the bad category, systems can unleash their power up on you. And what can you do about it? As one lowly person, how can you fight that groupthink? You can't. And so people that have realized that we have done this to people over and over and over again, we say, well, we need to train people to be trauma-informed. We don't own our past. We aren't even holding ourselves accountable 
We're just saying from here on forward, we need to be trauma-informed. While other lives hang in the balance, while other lives have been ruined. Dwayne is a success today because of Dwayne. He took himself back to college. He made something of himself. He chose strategically who he would spend his time with as an adult male and who he would leave behind because it was destructive for him. Even his family member took it upon herself to beat the shit out of him, which is quite illegal, to pummel him, to beat and beat and beat him. And when they could take no more, to kick him down the stairs. Because in her eyes, he has no value. He lost value. And see, that's the way we do people all the time. We rush to judgment. We rush to pass these laws, particularly anti-trafficking laws. We rush to pass these laws and we don't care. Give this person 30 years, 40 years life. And we don't think about the collateral damage. We don't think about the person who was a victim experienced trauma bonding and Stockholm syndrome, turned 18 years old, and then started working with the trafficker. We don't think about them. Because remember, we think black or white. We don't think gray. So you're either good or you're bad. You're going to prison, even though many years of your life you were a victim. And now you experience trauma bonding. We don't care. All I'm saying is when we think about being trauma-informed, and we should be trauma-informed, let's not forget why, why we need to be trauma-informed. It's because what we did yesterday, what many people will do today, will be traumatizing, will violate people's human rights. So let's not forget that. Let's be cautious. Let's think horses before we think zebras in many cases. Now, let's not forget that it took Dwayne a lot of takes to get this story out. But in his giving spirit, which is who he is, he wants people to know this story so that they use this story to not do this to another kid. Until next time, the fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.